Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable businesses and communities. This is Kate Meese, Executive Director of the Local Government Commission and host of our regular monthly series on smart growth and livable communities, where we discuss ways to create equitable communities that provide better housing, transportation, and economic opportunities for all residents. Today as our guest, we are honored to have Kim Dalbovan, the State Director for USDA Rural Development in California. Kim brings more than 20 years of experience and dedication to economic development and the improvement of rural life. Most recently, Kim spent 11 years as the Calusa County Supervisor representing the 1st District. During her tenure, she served as a chair of Rural Counties Representatives of California and led the charge on all federal and state issues that affect rural counties. Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me, Kate. So, Kim, we've experienced a tremendous amount of polarization ranging from politics and parties to geography, including what I'm seeing as a growing divide between urban and rural residents. Can you help our listeners understand the frustration that rural residents are feeling and some of the major challenges that they are facing? Yeah, I can. And that's that's such an important point too, Kate. I think rural communities really are the recreation, the fresh air, the fresh water. You know, they, they produce the safest and the most abundant food supply in California. You know, they don't only feed the U.S., but we feed the world. And I think there is a real thought or feeling or sense from rural communities that they aren't acknowledged for what they bring to the table, no pun intended. But, you know, they really aren't. People from the cities come in and use use our rural communities as the recreation area, and we and they love that. And we do supply all the food and the water. And I think there is just a real disconnect from people who don't live in it and work in it every day as to where their salad came from. It didn't just come from the grocery store. Or where their milk came from, it didn't come from the carton that came from the grocery store. It came from the cows that are being produced, you know, where the milk is being produced in these rural communities. And I think there's a real sense from the rural communities that it's just not appreciated or acknowledged and that the return on investment for what rural communities are producing isn't there. I think that's right. And I think one of the major challenges that we're seeing is a lack of education and communication around the the shared benefits, whether it's food and agriculture, as you were speaking to, or the management of our shared resources, our forest management, our watersheds, our air basins. So how do we grow that recognition and, and establish partnerships that can cut across urban users and rural stewards? Well, I think one of the most important messages that needs to be communicated is we have to keep our rural communities rural. 
to be able to do all these things. We can't let them turn into suburban or urban areas if we're going to keep producing the best food and the cleanest water. So I think a message needs to be crafted as to how important it is to keep our rural communities rural. When I was a county supervisor, we participated in a couple of events where we would invite legislators, members of Congress, county supervisors from suburban and urban areas in to visit the rural areas and really show what it takes to get that uh, grain of rice harvested or that almond on the ground and into the store. And I think that level of one-on-one communication and frankly, building relationships is what will help with this issue. Rural communities, as I know firsthand, are really still all about relationships. You know, they unfortunately don't have broadband equity that suburban and urbans have to be able to communicate in the social media way that most of us in the suburban areas do. So, you know, we have a challenge not only in the message that needs to be communicated, but we also have a challenge in the technical aspect of communicating that message. So I really think we need to work on those two things and getting people into the rural communities. Um, There used to be a very popular program called Ag in the Classroom, where teachers would take two weeks out of their year and teach kids um, in urban and suburban areas about agriculture and and why it matters. And, you know, uh, reinvigorating some of those programs, I think, would also help because, you know, it starts at that young of age. So I, I think doing that and finding a way to really keep our, the rural communities' messages in the minds of the urbans and suburbans would go a long way to this end. Yeah, you hit on a few really important points. We've covered the broadband issue quite a bit. It's, as you're well aware, it's a, a communication challenge, but it's also a challenge to to be a part of a number of the other economic drivers, whether it's value-added agriculture and increasingly precise ag precision that is Broadband is needed for for a lot of those techniques in addition to telecommuting and telemedicine and a, a lot of the other things that could be really beneficial for rural regions. I want to hit a little bit more on this issue that you raised around keeping rural regions rural and not urbanizing or turning them into suburbs. And I, I think that's a really interesting topic right now as we see increasing pressure with our affordable housing crisis to grow out into these wildland urban areas. We see more than double the amount of people living in the wildland urban areas since the 1970s. And since 1990, 60% of new homes have been built in these areas. So that has an impact on things like our ability to do groundwater recharge. It has an impact on the number of people at risk of wildfires. We're seeing that with um, not only the increasing firestorms that are climate enabled, but also we just have more structures in harm's way. So how do we how do we balance those priorities knowing that we need more affordable housing, but also being mindful of the trade-offs we make when we allow housing in some of these areas? Well, as we all know, and, and as a former county supervisor um, with a background in land use, it's the decisions that are made there. It's the planning. It's looking forward. And I think some of these just absolutely tragic wildfires that have happened in the state the last couple of years, I think that has led to planners thinking more thoroughly how we plan our communities and our growth. You know, growth's going to happen. It's California. But we just have to find a way to look forward plan well, and protect our resources at the same time. And I include agriculture 
production as as a resource in that statement. On the topic of wildfire, California lawmakers just passed a sweeping package to provide a billion dollars over the next five years to reduce the risk of wildfires across the state. Assuming the governor signs the bill, do you see any promising changes on the horizon um, that that bill can help usher in, whether it's forest management or other aspects that could be beneficial to rural regions? I think, you know, I'm not familiar with it at a very detailed level. I have a high level overview of, of what it is. And I think there are some real promising items in there. I think just the fact that attention's been drawn to this issue, where it has severely lacked attention with smaller wildfires. Unfortunately, when crisis happens in California, that's usually when we pay attention to things. But I think just the fact that the attention's been drawn to it and creating the opportunity for the conversation to have happen and frankly forcing the conversation is going to open up some new opportunities to manage things better in our forests and for people to be more more proactive in doing that. One of the the challenges related to wildfires but also the drought and the pine beetle that we've experienced is, is having over a million dead trees in California. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about efforts to turn this crisis into an opportunity for rural economic development? Well, one of the opportunities um, that has come out of this is uh, a larger conversation about biomass. There's several firms up in Canada and Oregon who have been really working with the product that lays on the bottom of the forest floor when these fires happened. It's kind of the third or fourth product that maybe, you know, the mainstream borders don't want to use or loggers don't want to use. But there's a company that that's up in up north that's working on a formaldehyde-free fiber board, you know, like our old plywood. But this is a safer and better form of that. And one of the interesting things that has happened is they've reached out to USDA Rural Development and said, you know, what can we do to partner with you guys to bring our company down into California and start working on this project? You know, there's a couple of regulatory hurdles at the state level that we need to work on, but USDA has a great program to help with biomass projects. So we're going to be working very closely with them and some of our forest regions over the next year to see if we can get some regulatory fixes and get them moved down into California to start working on this fallen and burnt wood that's laying on the forest floor. So it's those types of conversations and being open to new innovations that I think will really create some unique opportunities that can help in the long run. Yeah, it seems like a really promising approach. I I heard that there's a a move in Seattle and, and some other major cities to rethink construction and and using wood construction for this reason, because there's an abundance of dead trees that can be repurposed and, and otherwise put into construction that actually has a lower carbon footprint than something like concrete or steel, and actually can still be very strong as well. So I I heard that Seattle is building a 15-story building built all out of wood, which is pretty amazing. And it has, the issue for California is the seismic issue. And because it is stronger than steel, we need that movability in our California buildings that they might not need up there. So there's a couple unique challenges on that, but it is very interesting science that they are working on. And they are saying that it is stronger than steel. So we're really looking forward to having them down here. And I know they're working on the seismic issue. So hopefully that'll get addressed sooner rather than later by people much smarter than I. And, you know, we can work on some projects down here. I think it's very exciting, actually. So speaking of potential new industries, I think one of the challenges we've seen in rural regions is that 
communities have historically relied on on one or two industries. And our economy has really changed from the time of the Great Recession. And we really have seen that 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 isn't a, a sustainable economic development strategy to rely on single industries. So unfortunately, that is the case in many rural regions. I'm wondering if you have participated in or you're seeing a growing diversification of industries in rural economies that take advantage of value-added agriculture or other industries that can provide that diversification to be more sustainable. Yeah, well, Kate, you said it right there. I, I think the goal is long-term economic development for rural communities is those value-added businesses. If you really peel apart how many different businesses agriculture needs and rural communities need to sustain themselves, you have a number of other types of businesses that you could bring into these communities that add value to the agriculture, whether it's the machining for the manufacturing of the tomato paste plant or certain parts that are needed for the harvesters. The the list, we actually compiled the list here at RD to work with our rural economic development partners on, you know, how many different parts, how many different businesses were needed to sustain and grow food, frankly. And the list was quite long. And so really reaching out to some of those businesses and finding out from the local folks which businesses they're already using, like who's making the winemaker's wine barrels. How do we get a hold of those folks? You know, who's making the metal piece that goes around the wine barrel? How do we get a hold of those folks and see if they'd be interested in relocating into the rural communities? You know, and that keeps transportation costs down and other issues associated with transportation as well. So reaching out to them and coming up with a strategy as to how we bring those value added businesses closer to the product, I think is a real great long-term economic development strategy. And we're kind of working with each community a little different because our rural communities all produce different things as well because of their climates. So really focusing in on one or two communities and helping them get kickstarted in that is what we've been doing this last year. And we have a program that's called the Rural Business Development Grant Program. And that program is available to communities and nonprofits to apply to us for a grant so that they can do this planning process and come up with a economic development strategy as to how to get these businesses into their community. So I'm really excited as to what some of our communities are working on and looking forward to helping them this the next couple of years. That's great. If you don't mind, I'd love to hear a, a case study or two of, of how that grant program has been utilized. We just enrolled under my leadership. We just awarded the first 12 grants. So our case study will be in about six months. I don't want to preempt any of my any of my communities yet. So if maybe we could circle back around in about six months and I hopefully will have a handful of great stories and case studies to give. This is just kind of a new effort we've kicked off since I've been here in this office. So it's a first go around. Great. Well, we'll we'll have to definitely do a, a follow up podcast on that. Since we were talking about agriculture, I've got to ask about groundwater. Of course, it's been a challenge in California given the drought and the lack of of management we've had until the recent law that was passed, uh, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. What do you see in terms of innovation in groundwater management, and how can we deal with the issues around subsidence and determining which crops? that we grow and and how we look at um, getting the most value both for the crops, but also doing recharge programs to ensure that our 
agricultural businesses can be successful long term and continue to have that water available. Yeah, um, Sigma is is going to be a multifaceted challenge that everybody's going to have to come together and deal with. And I think you're seeing that throughout the state and how these communities are putting together their groundwater sustainability management groups. I have more of a background in this than just being in this position because as a former county supervisor, I actually sat on our Sigma committee putting it all together. So I understand the complexities behind it. But, you know, whether it's a groundwater recharge project or it's irrigating with surface water for agriculture, you're getting that water back into the ground, into the basins that it needs to be in so that we're stopping subsidence. Whether we're having a regulatory drought in the state or an actual drought in the state, or we're shifting water around for different uses, the end game is getting that water back in the ground so that we all, whether it's our community drinking water system or agriculture or our downstream fish needs or environmental needs, getting that water back into the ground benefits us all. So I really think that um, there's been a coming together over this issue and farmers want to keep farming. So I think they've really kind of stepped up to the plate to find ways to participate in these pro in their area Sigma groups so that they can have long-term sustainability. Here at USDA, California RD, we're actually proposing to the national office that under one of our programs, our community, or I'm sorry, our WEP program, our water and wastewater program, that we are allowed to use our funding to help with projects such as groundwater recharge. I've been the one making the case for this because most people on the East Coast don't quite understand how important it is on the West Coast and especially California to do these groundwater recharge projects for the future of agriculture and our state, frankly. So I'm hoping that by this time next year, I'll be able to say that under our WEP program, we can invest in groundwater recharge projects. So I'm really looking forward to that. So another podcast, fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah, that would be fantastic. And I think what's really exciting is it's not always the case that the regulation and the policy aligns with the technology, but I, I think we are seeing technology now where we can have pretty sophisticated mapping of potential areas for groundwater recharge. We can look down under the soils, flying over on a helicopter or through an ATV and map out pretty deep to see where are the the channels where the sand and gravel cuts through the clay. And we can get pretty sophisticated about where we're going to get the most out of our investment in groundwater recharge. So it's really exciting to see that alignment. And I'd love to continue to see those efforts really scale out. Yeah, I would too. And I'm really looking forward to creating an opportunity here for us to be able to participate with those efforts and support them. So I, I think that would be, I really think that there's some great opportunities here. What types of public investments are needed to cover local gaps? So are there strategies that really need state or federal support that can't be done on a one-off basis at the local level? Yeah, well, one of the things I jokingly tell people from an RD standpoint, from USDA's standpoint, is we can do everything in rural communities except plant it and propagate it under our programs. We have our community facilities programs. We have our water and wastewater programs. We have our multifamily housing program. We have a single family housing program. We just have a great litany of programs that we can help invest in rural communities, but we need the partnership of the state and the locals as well. The state budget 
constraints and where their priorities are set sometimes don't always match up with ours and local goals as well don't always match up with ours. But I think really getting out and into the communities and explaining what our programs are and what we have available to them and how we can partner up and align our goals, I think is one of the most important things we can do. And yes, there's always going to be gaps with the state and the feds for that matter. But I really think communicating our programs is one of the things we need to do because I kind of think we're a little bit of a hidden gem, frankly. And when our rural communities do get a hold of us and we kind of overlay several of our programs, we really come out with some great success stories and some improved infrastructure. You know, I think that's back to your original question, your first question. I think that's one of the most difficult things for rural communities is that they are so much further behind in their infrastructure improvements than suburban and urban communities that it's going to take twice as much to catch up. So I think an acknowledgement by the part of the feds, which I happily can say USDA does, and the state, that rural communities need to stay rural and need to be supported to do so, and that we move forward with policies and programs that support the locals in those efforts is probably the most important thing that we can do. And making sure that, like you said, that communication is there and getting the rural message out and helping people understand why it is so important to support these rural communities. Fantastic. Well, on that note, where can people find out more about the programs that you guys are offering? Well, they can visit our website, which is www.rd.usda.gov forward slash CA. And we'd love to have your listeners follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaRD. They can hear about what's going on on a regular basis and see which programs are open for funding notifications and find out what we're doing in rural communities, hopefully to, to reach out to some of their friends and families in rural communities and, and do programs that are similar. So we'd love to hear from your listeners and anyone who's interested in our programs or has ideas. We'd love to partner with them. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time in Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.